If you've got your Bibles, feel free to open up to 1 Peter chapter 5, which is where we're going to be spending our time today in God's Word as we study together and open our hearts to receive the instruction of the Holy Spirit and that He brings to us through His amazing Word. So our guys are going to be bringing note sheets and pencils around. If you need a Bible, um, make sure you raise your hand up so that our gentleman will know to drop one off at your seat for you so that you can join us as we study together. Grace is an amazing thing, isn't it? The fact that Jesus would love us with a free and uh, no strings attached love, that we come to him uh, in faith, give him our broken lives, and he gives us an exchange, an absolutely pure and, and redeemed, regenerated life. We are grateful to know him, and we know that we know God because of the work that he did, not because of any place we've earned at his table by our works or our, our good deeds or our, by our right attitudes, but rather we know him because of the free gift of grace that he pours out onto us. And so by grace, we approach his word. By grace, we receive the instruction that he gives to us so that we might understand him better and know what he desires for us as he calls us his own people. So we've got our scripture. We're open to 1 Peter chapter 5. And um, we're going to be talking again some more this morning about God's church and who God desires to lead his church. The bride of Christ, as I've been speaking about the last few weeks, is precious to the Lord God. He loves his church. He desires to be near to his church. He is covenanted with his church. And so we want to make sure that we do all that we can to sanctify the church, to keep it pure and holy. And that really starts with leadership. We don't want to let anyone lead in God's church and to guide his people who are not themselves being led by Jesus. And so when we speak about the qualities that help us to see whether a man should be a leader among the flock of Jesus, we must answer the question, who? What kind of a man is this? But we must also answer the question, why? Why does this individual feel drawn to serve the Lord in a specific and important way? And so as we examine the heart of the kind of men that God would use to lead his church from the pages of scripture, we want to also see what motivates this man who wants to serve, who desires to fulfill the role of deacon, servant leader, or elder, um, overseer over the church. And so we've already talked a little bit about the, about the who. We've talked about his true testimony in faith, that the one who serves must follow Christ with his whole heart. He must truly be a man after God's own heart. Secondly, we talked about his first ministry. Does this man uh, have a responsible ministry to his own family? Is he a one-woman man? Is he faithful to the call of marriage? Does he, does he care for his own children and shepherd his personal flock in his home? And today, uh, the third portion of our, our, our study through the qualities of a biblical elder or deacon uh, answers the question, are his motives for serving pure? Does he desire to attain to this position for the right reasons? And so having the scripture open to 1 Peter chapter 5, we are going to read verses 1 through 3 today, which is going to provide for us the structure uh, for our study. Starting in verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, 
not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So Peter begins this uh, short three verses by listing some of his qualifications. Why is he even qualified to tell us what kind of a heart this elder or this deacon should have? He says, first of all, he himself is an elder. He knows what it means to serve the Lord in a leadership capacity because he is, like other elders in God's church, helping to oversee the health and the well-being of God's bride. So he knows what it takes because he is serving in that capacity. Then he goes on to talk about how he is an eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ, which makes him an apostle. Uh, Now, we don't have apostles in the church today because those who walked with Christ, literally, those who saw him with their own eyes and saw the miracles and the signs that he performed, they have passed on. But they had a very, very important role in the early church as they established structures and patterns that were to be followed by the church for the ages to come. And so Peter talks about how he is also an apostle. He has had a unique exposure to Jesus Christ's leading. And so he has things to share with us that Christ has shared with him. And those, those gifted bits of knowledge and, and, and wisdom will help us as we discern who should serve and who should not serve. And, then, and finally, he thirdly identifies in a way that you might not expect. He says that he is a partaker of the glory which will be revealed. I think it's great that he says this. What he's basically talking about, this designation connects him with the church body as a whole. He said, yes, I am an elder, so I serve as an overseer, as a leader in the church. I'm also an apostle, and some might look at him as an apostle and think he is far above the church, that he has some, some hefty leadership role. But then he says, but don't lose track of the fact that I too am a partaker of the glory which will be revealed to me. Meaning, I am also just like you. I am a, I'm a follower of Christ, a believer. I am a sheep as well as a shepherd. And that's a, a unique thing about leadership in God's church. The elders are not somebody far above. The deacons are not some special class on a pedestal that are to be revered and honored in a way that makes them so wholly other than the regular people in the church, but rather they themselves are also sheep needing to be led. But in obedience to the great head shepherd, Jesus Christ, elders and deacons want to come alongside the work that he is doing in guiding his people. So he says, I am an elder. I I, I know what I'm talking about. I'm also an apostle, so I have a degree of, of authority to give instruction to you from God but I'm also a partaker of this glory that we share together. So as a church member, I desire the same thing that you desire, says Peter. I want healthy churches. I want your churches to be strong and to to teach the truth, and I want them led in a way that is glorifying to the Lord God. Starting with verse 2, Peter offers three sets of contrasts. These contrasts describe the motivational dichotomy of a godly leader versus a worldly leader. This is framed in the language of shepherding. He talks about how these elders, these overseers, are to offer shepherding to the flock of God, to care for them in a way that mimics the patterns that Jesus Christ set for them. And so he gives them three three different patterns. He says, don't be like this. Instead, be like this. Here is a worldly pattern of leadership. This is the way that the world thinks leadership is to go. Don't lead that way. Instead, if you want to be a godly leader, then lead in this pattern. Have these kind of qualifications, these kind of attributes, if you want to honor God in the way that you lead. God has a more excellent way of doing things. 
and the hearts of his leaders are very important to him. So as we consider the role that a biblical leader will play in the church, we must see that the things that drive him, that motivate him, must be the kind of things that drive the Lord as well. Now this passage applies explicitly to leaders who will serve as elders. But the attitudes described would also very much serve a deacon as well. So I don't think we should just see this just as elder qualifications, but we should also see it as the heart of those who would see it as a, serve as a servant leader in the church. So in the, in, the, in the first part of the second verse here, we are told that some lead out of compulsion. Here's the don't be like this model. He says, the people in the world who lead often lead out of compulsion. Don't be motivated by that. Now, compulsion is, is, it, is like an external force that drives a person, Right? maybe even sometimes against their will to do something that they may or may not want to do. And you're compelled, that means somebody is pushing you from outside. This morning I was compelled to be up at 3 a.m. Not because I wanted to be, but because I have a three-week-old baby girl who was hungry. And so we sat on the couch for quite a while this morning. And so if I preach weirdness today, then I'm going to blame the baby. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying my best to get the rest I need to, to preach well, but it's, it's a little bit hard. I'm compelled to be awake because she is a force to be reckoned with. And so there are times when leaders are motivated to lead, not by a righteous desire in their heart, but they can be compelled in wrong ways. Now, here's a parallel usage of this, pa this passage, this idea of compulsion. If you were to look at 2 Corinthians 9, I'm going to have this on the screen so you don't have to flip there if you don't want to, but 2 Corinthians 9, the apostle Paul is trying to instruct the church at Corinth about the ways that they give to the work of God, the ways that they are to collect offerings for God's work to support missions and to support the spread of the gospel and the health of the church. And he says in verses 6 through 7, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed, where? In his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. So those who lead God's flock have, have got a, an interesting task in they must teach the congregation that if you love the gospel, you're to be giving to the gospel work. If you were saved by Christ, then the scripture instructs you to support that work financially. <clears throat> but we're also supposed to be careful not to compel you to do that. You shouldn't be putting anything in the offering because pastor's watching. And you want to make sure that he doesn't see you pass the bag without putting anything in. That should not be the reasons that you give to the Lord God. And we shouldn't be there with a little tally sheet making sure that everyone's given a certain amount. That's not really our job. But our job is to teach that giving to the Lord is a blessing to us because the gospel is what has transformed us. And so we're not to give compulsively for the wrong reasons because someone else is pressuring us to give. Rather, we're to give cheerfully. So that, that passage, which is kind of clear to understand, should now help us to understand this passage back in Peter where we're told that leaders are to lead not compulsively not because of some external force that is pressed upon them, but they are to lead because they have a desire to do so. They are willing. Now, we've got to ask the question, is all compulsion necessarily negative? Is it always wrong to be compelled by an external force? I would say no. 
we all need some forms of external motivation, don't we? Even at the opening of this section of verses, Peter makes it clear that in a way he's compelling the leaders, the elders of the church to do it right, to be motivated by the right things. Remember he says, so I exhort the elders among you. What does the word exhort mean? That means he is, he is challenging them to do this well. He is compelling them in a way to think about their role and how they serve God and to do it from a right heart. He says, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So he is, he's compelling these elders to really take seriously their calling. So not all compulsion is bad compulsion. The apostle Paul plainly points out that he was operating under a good and holy compulsion. In 1 Corinthians 9.16, he says, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. So what is he saying? Does he say he has, does he have a, a board of trustees that are just poking him in the back saying, you better preach the gospel every time you get in the pulpit? No, he's pointing upward. He's saying that I am compelled. The love of Christ, which has made me a new person, which has transformed me and given me new life, eternal life, compels me to preach this good news to others so they might too experience the regeneration that I've experienced. And so if Paul does not preach the gospel, he says, woe to me. It would be depressing for him if he was not able to preach the gospel. It would be hurtful to him if, if he were to neglect this calling because he knows that it's so important. He's got a heart for it. He is willingly doing the work that God has set him to do. We all need to be pressed forward. And I'm grateful that I have several people in my own life that have a habit of challenging me, of compelling me, of pressing me forward to consider my heart and to think about the reasons why I do the things that I do. So that I'm not just making arbitrary decisions, but that I'm always trying to consider the heart of the people that I'm ministering to, that I'm always trying to consider my own heart if I'm doing things for right motives. And those people sometimes press me so hard that it's, it's difficult for me to be around them sometimes. Those people that challenge you and are constantly asking you, have you been in the Word? Have you been praying? At times that can convict us and we can feel guilty because we aren't always living up to the standards that we should live up to. But I need people like that to compel me. I couldn't be one of these people that say, you know, I, me and God, we have a personal relationship, but I don't need to be involved with God's church because I just kind of do it on my own. I just go in the wilderness and I walk with the Lord and have a hike or I pray when I feel like praying. I couldn't, I couldn't govern my life well that way. I need accountability. I need brothers and sisters who will encourage me and exhort me and who will watch me and make sure that I'm not just serving God in word but not in deed. So we all need at times to be compelled. Compulsion itself is not bad. But we should be careful not to let the wrong forces compel us into leadership in God's church. There are several negative reasons a leader might serve compulsively. And we don't have time to look at every negative reason, but I want to give you three that are often a danger to those who desire to serve as elders or deacons. A man may be negatively compelled to serve in God's church by guilt. Maybe they feel like the sins that they committed against God were so great and they are so very grateful 
for the transformation that God has brought into their life that they feel like they have to somehow pay God back for the grace that he has given to them. If we're honest with ourselves, there's a, most of us have probably felt some way like that before. Like, oh, I wish I could pay God back for what he's given to us. But if we were to do that, we would have canceled out grace. We couldn't sing Amazing Grace anymore because grace is a free gift. It's not a loan. It's not like God's floating you an IOU and saying, hey, I'll get you into heaven now, but you're going to pay me back for this eventually, right? No, it's grace. We are who we are in Christ because God has given that to us. But there is a natural desire in man's heart to want to try to pay him back. And so there are people from time to time who desire to serve as an elder or as a deacon or even as a Sunday school teacher or as a missionary or as a worship leader. They desire these things because they feel guilty and they feel like they've got to show God that he made a good choice by bringing them on the team by serving them with a, with a, a, a diligent work ethic. If I don't have full assurance that the cross of Jesus Christ was enough to absolutely wipe out my sin, then I am liable to think that I need to contribute some noteworthy penance to my case for salvation. When Jesus paid the price for our sin, how much of it did he pay? Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. He didn't just pay the down payment. He didn't just ante up for us. He gave everything so that we would be washed pure from our sins. You know, and all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us owe a great debt to the Lord. And it is a serious debt. Most people walk this world not even realizing that they owe this debt to God. But through the scripture, we understand that to sin against God is to offend the one who has given us our very breath. It is to rebel against the Lord of all creation who deserves honor and glory and praise. But thankfully, we have a God who is willing to absolutely cancel out that debt. And he did it by the work of Jesus Christ. He did it by sending his son to live a perfect, spotless life and then to die a gruesome death on a cross to pay the literal penalty of death that we owe to God so that all who trust in him might be released from that debt that they owe to the, to the maker. We don't need to contribute anything more than what Jesus has already contributed. Now, that doesn't mean we get saved and then we just kind of gallop through life doing whatever we want to do and ignore the law of God and, and care not about holiness or righteousness. But it would be wrong for us to think that if I just serve God in a greater capacity, then I'll be worthy of heaven. If I just give my life over to the mission field, then I'll be worthy of heaven. If I just learn to play an instrument and give my beautiful voice to the Lord and, and lead others to sing, then I'll be qualified for the gates of heaven. It doesn't work that way. The Lord God purchases us by his blood and makes us pure by his sacrifice. And then we give to him, but we give as a reflection of gratitude. We give because we can now give, because he has made us worth something when before we were spiritually dead. In reality, it would take so much more than our service to ever get us near to the, to the, uh, the gates of heaven. It would take the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and only that can make us pure enough and holy enough to know God and to have a right relationship with him. So a man may be negatively compelled by guilt. A man may also be negatively compelled by pressure. Pressure from well-meaning leaders who might be suggesting elder or deacon service to them. Now in the past year or two, we've talked to some individuals about being elders at our church and we said, have you, 
ever thought about serving in this way? Uh, you as a church have nominated people uh, to us, brought them to our attention to see if perhaps these are people who would like to serve as elders in the church. We're always open to the Lord adding new people to the elder service here if that is his will. But we also know that there's no specific number that we need to have. Uh, the pattern of scripture is simply that there is a plurality of elders, that there are multiple men that are serving in this regard. It doesn't say you have to have a certain amount per person or anything like that. So you have nominated people to us and we've prayerfully considered those nominations. We've gone to those and several of the men who we've gone to have said, you know what, after praying about this, after thinking about it, uh, I'm grateful you came to me and asked me to serve if I'd be willing to, but at this point in my life, I don't think I'm ready to do that. Or at this point in my life, I don't have the time that I'd really need to give to do that job well. And so several guys have said, thank you, but I can't serve that way right now. And we're grateful for that. We're grateful that men would take this job seriously enough that they wouldn't just say yes because they didn't want to let us down or because they didn't want to think that this is my only chance to help the Lord God. And, and if somebody recognizes something good in me, I, I got to grab onto that. I got to seize that opportunity. Rather than being pressed by the pressure of people to do God's work as an elder or a deacon, we should have a desire to do that work. There should be an intrinsic want to serve in that way. Others maybe feel the pressure to respond because no one else is stepping into those roles. You've ever felt that way at church? I'm sure you have. Well, nobody else is doing it. I guess I'll do it. And th you know, there's some nobility to that. You don't want to see a job go undone. But when we're talking about serving as an elder or as a deacon, we're talking about positions that have very specific requirements in the word. And so if we are motivated by the fact that there's nobody serving, our response should not be, well, just plug me in. I'll do the best I can do. Rather, our desire should be, well, then I need to start getting my life in line with the Lord's will in such a way that I'll begin to meet the requirements of a godly elder. So that if, if that is a need, then I will be qualified to serve. We don't want to just jump in and do a role that we're not qualified to do. But if there is a compulsion, if you feel sad that people aren't stepping up to do those jobs, then start to seek to be one of the kinds of people that God could use in that role. Begin to think about what we're learning in this series about the qualifications for a godly elder or deacon. and Begin to examine your life and say, well, how can I grow in ways that I might be above reproach? How might I, might I better serve my own family as my first ministry and be a good shepherd to them? How do I need to start to, to guard my, my habits so that I don't do the kind of things that would disqualify me from serving well in the church of God? So there are sometimes people who serve because others are pressuring them to serve or they feel that if they don't do it, nobody else will. And that's not really the right reason to step into one of these two important roles. Thirdly, a man may be negatively compelled to serve as an elder or a deacon by personal satisfaction. This one might be a little bit awkward to think about. There are some incredible joys to serving as an elder or as a deacon. Some incredible joys. When I'm teaching the scripture to somebody, I'm trying to help someone grow in their discipleship and I begin to see the light bulb go off in their head. You start to see them understand one of the eternal truths of God that before they were confused about or they didn't really, they didn't really grasp. You begin to see them rejoice in that truth. It's a tremendous blessing to the heart of the person who's ministering when they begin to see that in a person's life. When you get to see your own spiritual gifts put to good use, 
when you begin to contribute to something that is eternally valuable and you get to see how you play a part in God's bride, these things can all bless you tremendously. It can be a great joy to you. But a biblical elder or one who serves as a deacon in a biblical way should not be doing that role only because he is benefited personally by it. Not because they feel the joy of the victories of the station. I remember a particular event when we tried uh, to pull off, I say tried because we didn't pull it off very well as a church, a couple years back. And uh, it required a bunch of moving parts. We had several volunteers who were supposed to help out. And because it was done over a holiday, many people the last minute began to say, oh, I can't make it. We got something else that came up. Oh, somebody else invited us to family. And so one by one, my volunteers began to just disappear. And so we had all these people who were coming to church for this event and all the people who were supposed to take care of this and take care of that and take care of those things, they weren't there. And so where does the responsibility lie? It falls on the leadership. And so I am running around like a spiritual chicken with its head cut off, trying to plug holes in the dam and the barbecues aren't working and oh, we forgot to thaw the meat out and I don't have all the the utensils. How are we supposed to eat this stuff? And it was going horribly. And I got to admit, it was a... Big fail. But um, as I'm sweating and as I'm trying to make sure that the pop-ups aren't blown away into oblivion and and nothing catches on fire, uh, I see Louise Bradshaw. And I walk up to my dear friend Louise and I put my hand on her shoulder and I'm just like trying to catch my breath. And I look over to her and I'm like, sister, ministry is hard, you know. And Louise is the wife of a pastor for years and years and years. For decades, she has served diligently in this ministry. And I think part of me was just hoping that she would pat me on the back and say, it's going to be all right. You know, this happens to every minister. I, you know, I can, I can identify with your struggle, and with your strife. It's going to be better next time. She didn't say those things to me at all. <laughs> Louise put her hand on my shoulder. She looked me in the eye and she said, suck it up, buttercup. This is what you signed up for. I will forever be grateful for that woman. She was a true sister to me. She didn't coddle me. She didn't, you know, she didn't, she pat me on the back and say, it's going to be okay. She didn't, she didn't soft sell it. She told me the truth. She told me in that moment what I needed to hear. I was trying to give her a handwritten invitation to my pity party and she said, I don't want to come. I don't want to be at that pity party because you probably didn't thaw out the meat and get the pop-ups all set up. You're obviously not good at planning parties. Uh, She reminded me that the work of elder service is tough. It's hard. And friends, it is going to break your heart sometimes. If you serve as an elder, if you sign up to do that role, you will go home brokenhearted from time to time. You will have to break other people's hearts from time to time. It is difficult to serve as a shepherd to the people of God. And she was imploring me not to let my service to God be based off of the little victories that feel so good from time to time. That's not the reason you should serve the Lord God in ministry. You shouldn't desire to be an elder or a deacon so that people will high five you when you get the picnic just right. Or is that when you preach that sermon that just lights everybody's hearts on fire, that everyone's patting you on the back and saying, oh, I got to listen to that one again on the podcast. Rather, you should serve the Lord God because it's what you are called to do and because you know that it's good work. It is hard work. It is stressful work. 
It can, it can wear heavy on the heart, but it is a good work. God does not call a man to serve as, an, as a leader so that he might feel important. He doesn't call us to be elders and deacons so that he can prove to us that we're useful or that we're approved of. He calls a man to leadership so that that man might trust the Lord in greater ways and bring glory to God through his obedient service. That's why he calls him. There are aspects of leadership roles that we're talking about that are inglorious. A man who is primarily compelled to serve so that he can experience the satisfactions of ministry's victories will not last long as an elder or a deacon. That is a negative, right? That we are sometimes compelled to lead for the wrong reasons. But Peter also gives us the positive side of that. He says, don't lead like the world who is compelled to lead by external forces, who feels guilty and leads. Instead, here's the positive side of things. The biblical leader should serve willingly. The biblical leader should serve willingly. If you do me a favor and turn in the Old Testament to Isaiah chapter 6, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture there to see this kind of how it plays out for us. Chapter 6 of Isaiah is near the beginning of this book and it really talks about an amazing way that this prophet, this man of God who was given the word, the counsel, the wisdom of God and then was called to bring that counsel to the nation of Israel so they would know what God wants. This is part of his calling. This is part of how God calls him to serve him. And so as we're looking at chapter 6 and we look at verse 1, it says, In the year of King Uzziah, or in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah here is not in a physical temple. He's not in a physical room. God has done something miraculous to bring him out of his normal state of consciousness and to give him a vision of sorts. And when he finds himself in this somehow spiritual throne room of God, he is blown away by the majesty of the one that he serves. To be near to this God, to understand his glory, to see him with his own eyes is overwhelming to him. And he sees angels about the throne and he sees the, the robes of the king that are filling the temple with glory and he just, he almost melts. He thinks, I do not deserve to be here. I am going to die because I should not be in the presence of God. That, friends, is a man who is in touch with his own weakness. That's a man who humbly knows that he is a sinner. We should have that sort of sense of reverence for God that Isaiah has, that immediately when he's in the presence of God, he thinks, I don't really belong here. God is too good for me. Skipping down to chapter, or to verse 5, it says, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Because of his personal sin, and because of the sin of the nation he was a part of, because of Israel's sin, Isaiah knows that he's not worthy to be near to God, let alone to serve him. Verse 6, he goes on to say, Then one of the seraphim, one of the angels that was there in the presence of the king, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, that he had taken with tongs from the altar. There was a burning fire on the altar where worship gifts were offered up to God and he takes a coal from that altar. Verse seven, and he touched my mouth 
And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Wow. This man who comes into the presence of God and immediately is overwhelmed by the fact that he doesn't belong there, he's not worthy, is then made worthy by an act of God. God himself comes to Isaiah and cleanses him with coal. We know that that cleansing would actually happen through Jesus Christ. He is the one that cleanses us from our sin and makes us not enemies to God, but now suddenly worthy to be a part of his family and to actually serve him in a useful way. And so then in verse 8, it says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. Here I am. Send me. Because of what God has done, Isaiah lets God's will be his own will. I will do what you want me to do. Though I am overwhelmed, and though the task is great, if you cleanse me of my sin, you can make me able to serve. I voluntarily, willfully come and serve you. Send me. That's the attitude that Peter is talking about here. When a man is motivated to serve, it should not be by some external force, somebody pressuring them to do the job or just because there's no one else to do it. It should be a willingness that comes from the heart. I have seen the glory of the Lord God. I desire to serve that beautiful, perfect, all-powerful maker. An elder or a deacon should understand the demands and the strains of this kind of service. We don't want people coming into elder service or deacon service with a naive understanding of what it demands of a person because they will be disappointed. You see that Isaiah understands. He sees the gravity of this calling. He knows how serious it is. And that's why at first he believes that he's going to die because he doesn't deserve to be in the presence of God. He knows how big it is and he knows that he's not worthy of the task personally. The person who would serve as a leader in God's church should examine their own heart to see if their willingness is for the sake of being obedient or the prospect of some kind of reward or to please other people. If our willingness is for the sake of obedience to God, then, then our motives are pure. They should be fully aware that their usefulness in this service will be utterly dependent upon God supplying everything they need for the task that they have been called to. And brothers, the heavenly call of God is often made to servants who are not initially willing. Over time, those who pursue Jesus will see that willingness may not be the first response of the heart, but it is the best response of the heart. God compels us to be what we are not. That is the very nature of salvation. Salvation is a process whereby God draws man into a state of being that is contrary to his natural sinful state of being. But that heavenly calling will be accomplished by the, the work of the Holy Spirit within us and it will be accompanied by a real desire to fulfill the call, even if that takes time. Jeremiah in chapter 20, he is a called servant of the Lord. Is he willing? Not always. In verse 9, 
he speaks about in chapter 20 how he doesn't want to preach anymore. He's tired of the nation of Israel ignoring him. He's tired of the people going against the will of God, even though he has preached it clearly to them again and again and again. And so he says, I'm not going to preach anymore. But then in verse 9 of Jeremiah 20, he says, but it is like a fire in my bones. As much as I would like to just give up on this difficult work, as much as I would like to turn away from it, I cannot because I must preach this gospel. I must preach this word of God. I must tell them the truth. He is compelled by it. Jesus preaches a parable. He's talking about those who desire to follow him. And he said that they must eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. Those who desire to be his disciples. And everybody who's, who's listening to him preach are like, what? That's crazy. Like, I don't, I don't, I'm not comfortable with that kind of a message. And so all these disciples that have gathered around him, not just the 12, but an extended amount of people, many of them start to gather the things and leave. They, they can't fathom what this means, that, that if you're going to follow after Christ, you've got to drink his blood and eat his flesh. That sounds completely crazy to them. Now, Jesus is not calling them to cannibalism, obviously. He's basically saying that I must be the basic sustenance you need to get by. If you're going to be my disciple, you have to depend on me like you depend on bread, like water. You, you've got to be nourished by me and by the wisdom that I give to you. So he says this difficult teaching and many people begin to leave. It says in John 6, starting in verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And so Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So though that willingness is not always our first response, when we really think about it, our attitude should eventually settle into the attitude that Peter and the other 12 had, that this might be tough. This is going to turn a lot of people away. The world's not going to embrace this truth of the gospel. They're going to be offended by the scripture. It's going to make me some enemies, but you know what? I can't go anywhere else. Jesus is the only one who has the answer. He is the true keeper of salvation. And so I, I must be willing to go and serve. I must be willing to do what God calls me to do. And then there's finally a parable in Matthew 21 that Jesus shares with the people. It's found in verses 28 through 32 where a father instructs his two sons and he says, I want you to go out into the vineyards and I want you to work today. I need you to labor um, in the vineyards because there's much to be done. And of the two sons, the first one says, I will go, Father. But then after dad goes away, he drags his feet a little bit. Son starts to get up, starts to get kind of hot. So he ends up never even going into the vineyard. He doesn't even help out. The second son, when dad said, go into the vineyard, I need your help. I need you to go and work in the vineyard today. Second son says, I don't want to go in the vineyard. I'm, going, I'm not going in the vineyard today. But then after dad walks away, he feels convicted feels like, man, that's my dad. I should do what he calls me to do. He goes into the vineyard and he works that day. And so Jesus says, which one of these two was a true faithful son? Which one of these two obeyed the will of his father? And of course, the answer to that is the one who was at first unwilling, but upon reflection, decided to obey. So the willingness of a servant sometimes takes time. Somebody who is called to the ministry of elder or deacon, might at first reject it, might at first push against it. But eventually, if the Lord is calling, he will persist and provide the desire for that individual to be willing in their service to him. 
There is a second contrast here that Peter points out. Uh, Again, we have a negative and a positive. The negative is this. Some in the world, some normally think of leadership and they, they lead for shameful gain. Some lead for shameful gain. Here is an internal motivation that you don't want to see coming from people who want to be elders or deacons. Not all gain is shameful, but some gain is. Some people are driven to serve not by a desire to do what is right, but rather by a desire to gain what they might not otherwise gain if they didn't have those influential positions of elder or deacon. Some are are seeking shameful monetary gains. They are greedy. It is right and holy to want to provide for your family. Let's make that clear right away. Money itself is not evil, but the love of money leads to all kinds of evil in our lives. And that applies to men of God as much as it applies to anyone. When we let our hearts desire money in inappropriate ways, it can poison us. It affects our motivation. It causes us to do things for the wrong reasons. Ministers often joke about pastors not making much money, and I always feel weird when that conversation starts happening because whether someone does or does not serve as a leader shouldn't be about money. should have nothing to do with dollars and cents. God often provides for his shepherds in unconventional ways, but he always provides for them. The very nature of church work creates a dynamic where those who are motivated by selfish gains might take advantage of the flock to satisfy their personal agendas. Church members want to trust their pastors. They want to believe the best of them. And so sometimes pastors will enter into service of the Lord knowing that and desiring to take advantage of people who are easy to take advantage of because of the high level of trust they have for their leaders. That's not always easy to see, So we've got to look at other areas of people's lives as well. Remember we talked about how a man serves in his family. We'll give you an indicator of how they might serve as an elder or as a deacon. Think about it also in terms of finances. If a person is cheating on their taxes, if a person is not upfront in their business practices, then you've got to see that and recognize that here might be a person who, if they're given the position of elder, might be serving for shameful gain. That might not be the best person to put in the position of leadership in your church. We should also humbly remember the night or that, that right before Jesus, uh, Judas betrays Jesus, we found him upset that the expensive oils were used to anoint the feet of Jesus. A woman came and, and gave a costly perfume and, and rubbed it on the feet of Jesus. And Judas was so angry about this because he, he says that was like a year's wages worth of, of costly oil. That could have been put into the money bags. Who was in charge of the money bags? Judas was in charge of the money bags. And so the Gospels revealed to us that part of his struggle, Judas, was that he was greedy. He wanted to be a disciple of Jesus for shameful gain. May we never serve the Lord God so that we can put more money in our pockets. This shameful motivation is not always up front. So we've got to be careful and keep an eye on the way that people spend and the way that they are stewards of what God gives to them. A person who desires to serve as a leader in God's church so that they might uh, attain to a higher status is also one who is seeking shameful types of gain. First um, Timothy five seventeen says the elders who rule well, rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. Especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. 
we learn from the Apostle Paul in this verse that he shares with Brother Timothy, we learn that when you serve well as an elder, and also if you serve well as a deacon, then people will honor you for that. You'll be worthy of double, double honor. Uh, elders are often, if they're, especially if they're laboring in the word and they're, they're diligent in prayer, are worthy of a salary of some kind. And so many people uh, who serve in, in the capacity of elder or deacon are hoping to gain something of it. For the, they're hoping to serve in the wrong reasons. They want to get that double honor when in reality that double honor is, is something that comes, but it should not be the motivating factor for our service. The gravity of the task means that those who fulfill it will of course be recognized, but our hearts should be spurred on by greater things than the recognition of man. Never pursue an elder or decomposition because you want to sit at the big boy's table. You want to be in on all the important conversations. That should not be your motivation. Because you want to be seen highly of by your peers. That should not be the thing that makes you want to serve. You'll be disappointed once you pull up a chair to that table because true service as an elder or a deacon is at its very core a service of humility. The man who wants to exalt himself will find himself in an awkward place if he wants to truly be an elder or deacon because that kind of service is a service that humbles. When Jesus perceived his 12 disciples wondering which one of them would attain to greatest status, they were all kind of kind of whispering among themselves, which one of us is going to sit at the right hand of Jesus? Who's going to be exalted when the kingdom comes? He addresses them. He confronts that, that conversation. Verse 35 of Mark 9, sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And then he draws a little child to himself and he says, you've got to have a heart like this little one, like this child. That's not the kind of heart that gets exalted and gets some great status. He says, rather than being concerned with the way that people think of you, you should be concerned of obedience and humility. The very nature of the service of an elder or deacon renders, uh, renders unto God should follow the generosity of the Savior who was willingly made low so that others might be lifted up from their despair. One more reason why people might seek shameful gain. Some people seek it for power and for influence. There is a desire to be a shot caller, to be the one who makes the decisions, to influence the church in the direction you want it to go. The heart of man sometimes causes a person to want to be in a position of leadership to express those ungodly desires. The ability to influence teases within us that natural desire to take God's place and to wrestle control of our lives out of his grip so that we might control ourselves. Shameful gains tend to feed the desire to exalt the self. A biblical leader is not intent to lead others to himself but a biblical leader rather desires in all ways to lead others to Jesus and to see Jesus exalted. It should not be about the influence that a leader has on the church. Rather, that leader should always be looking at the leadership that God uh, gives as the true head of the church. So we must guard ourselves from these shameful gains. Now the flip side of that negative, of course, Peter provides for us, is that the biblical leader should serve eagerly. Instead of seeking shameful gains, he should serve eagerly. Eagerness is slightly different than the willingness that he spoke of just a few words ago. Peter's demand to serve willingly focuses on free choice. To serve willingly is to say yes to the work. But the demand to serve eagerly adds to that. Not only will a biblical leader offer himself up for service by his own free choice, he will also 
have a strong emotional desire to do it. He must see it done as Paul declared, if not, he will despair. If the, if the gospel's not being preached, if the church is not led well, it will be like a deep and heavy burden upon the heart of the man who is truly called. There's such a desire to see God's will accomplished in the church that the service itself, the act of giving, becomes its own reward. The person is not serving just so they can get something else. It's not a means to an end. Rather, he sees the service itself as a gift from God. It is a humbling grace that God would allow us to come near to him and serve in these important capacities. They don't need some carrot on a stick. How many of you have seen that, you know, that little cartoon where there's a man sitting on a donkey and he's got a fishing pole and dangling from the fishing pole is a little carrot, right? Donkey doesn't want to move unless that carrot is out in front. So some people say, well, yeah, of course I, you know, I, I want to get paid for this work. I, of course I I, I want to be recognized for what I've contributed. Of course, I want to feel like I'm appreciated in the church. That's nothing more than a carrot. And if you're serving for the carrot, what does that make you? Makes you a donkey in that cartoon, right? <laughs> so we don't, want to be, we don't want to be serving God out of this wrong motivation. Rather, the work itself is the gift that God gives to us to sit back at the end of the day and say, wow, the Lord worked in my heart. I was able to minister to people and he put me in some hard situations and it was difficult, but I was able to trust in him the whole way through. And he provided scripture for me that whole time that gave me the wisdom that I wouldn't have come up with on my own. He provided the wisdom for me from his scripture as I served him in that capacity. What an amazing reminder to me that God is real. Sometimes I think God made me a minister because I was too weak of a Christian to follow him well if I wasn't in the word all the time. Because I've got to be in the Word all the time. That's my job. I've got to be serving Him because it's my job. Maybe, maybe He made me a minister because I'm too weak to be a regular Christian. But we should be thinking of this work of eldership, this work of deacon service, as itself the gift that God gives. He is our portion and our reward. It is possible to be willing, but to not be eager. Some people say yes to the Lord's work, but they're not really desiring it. I remember when Thomas is hearing about how Jesus is, this is near the end of the ministry, and Jesus is saying, we've got to go to Jerusalem. You know what I have to do there. I've got to go and give my life. The Son of Man must be lifted up by the people of this world, exalted on a cross. I must be crucified. And, uh, you know, the, Peter's saying, we, we don't need to go. We're not going to go. I'm not going to let you die. And Thomas says, well, let's go and die with him then. Literally, he's, he says, well, if, if, if Jesus is going, then we might as well go die with him. So in the, on, the, on the same regard, there's a willingness, but there's not an eagerness, right? He's not eager to do this work. Ideally, you're, the man who serves should be willing. He should also be eager. He should also desire to do the work that is set before him. It should be a joy to him. And finally, as we're running short on time here, the third contrast presented by Peter is that some in the world would like to lead in order to domineer, in order to flex their power in order to move with great force and manipulate the people of God. The shameful gains that we spoke about a moment ago, money, status, influence, and power, they have the potential to turn a shepherd into a butcher. One who protects from threats into one who would take the sheep to the slaughterhouse so that he might benefit from their death and their demise. Often if one man's gain comes at the expense of another man, 
He will begin to use whatever force he needs to in order to maximize his own profit. That's the way of the world. That's why labor unions initially began to appear in America because humans who held the economic power were manipulating those who had no power and so the labor unions were an attempt to try to equalize that power. And then unfortunately in our nation we've also seen those labor unions become so powerful that they began to manipulate the forces underneath them. Man tends to manipulate others because of their sinful nature. That is the pattern of man's heart. But it cannot be the way, it cannot be the way of God's leaders, especially in light of the fact in the verses that follow Peter, he remind, uh, the, the verses that follow the section in 1 Peter we're reading today, he reminds them that they have an obligation to subject themselves to the leader of these godly elders. They have to be trustworthy. They cannot be men who are going to manipulate and, and rule with an iron fist. Our elders and our deacons must be soft-hearted. They must care for the well-being and the health of the flock, not just for their own ambitions. There's a sad example of how this domineering can creep into God's worship in the book of 1 Samuel. I'm going to read verses 12 through 17 for you. It says, Now the sons of Eli, who were also priests, they were from the, the line of, of Levi. Uh, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord and the custom of the priests with the people. When any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling and with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And then he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron of the pot and all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. So basically they're describing one of the ways that the priests got paid back in the days of Israel was when offerings were brought, the fat was offered as a burnt offering to the Lord God, and then the meat was divided up and they would boil it, and the priests would then be able to come in and with a three-pronged fork, they would be able to push into this cauldron and whatever meat came out on that fork was what they were paid for that day. That was part of their wage. Verse 15, also before they burned the fat, and he's talking about these wicked priest's sons, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. So they were not content to get what the traditions of the temple provided for them. They wanted to get their meat before the boiling. They wanted some of that fat that was supposed to go to the Lord God. They wanted the good cuts, and so they were refusing to operate under the, the, the rituals of the temple. They wanted to do it their own way. Verse 16, if the man said to them, they must surely burn the fat first, and then you may take as much as you desire. Then he, one of the sons of Eli, would say, no, but you shall give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. So it's describing this means by which two men who did not qualify to serve as priests, I know that's different than elder, it's different than deacon, but they did not qualify to, to, to serve as godly leaders in, in, in the nation of Israel, were given the position anyway because their dad was a priest. And then they exploited that position for personal gain. And they were willing to domineer others to get what they wanted. They used their position of authority in such a way that they were like bullies in the temple. And it made men not want to come to the temple and worship because they didn't want to face these domineering individuals. So we must be cautious, church, that we are careful not to put people in charge who are domineering, who lead with an iron fist, and who, who lead in such a way that people are intimidated and are pushed back and feel like they cannot freely come with love to God's household. 
Matthew eleven twelve. Jesus is complimenting the ministry of John the Baptist. He turns their attention to a historical truth. He says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. But this was not the way of John. He was not a violent man. His might was not in intimidation. His might was not in strong-arming people into submission. Though his words were mighty, he did not domineer, but rather he appealed to the conscience of those who heard him preach. See how John dissuaded the people from using their advantages over others in a domineering way. When he was baptizing in the Judean wilderness, people began to become convicted that they were sinful and they needed to repent to the Lord God. And so many would come to him and, and look for direction. What do we do in light of this repentance that is so important. In verse 10 of Luke 3, the crowds were questioning him saying, then what shall we do? And John the Baptist would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. In other words, what he's saying is, if God has put you in a position of advantage, share your advantage. Don't just lord it over others. Don't use it as a power play for the rest of the community, but instead look for those who are weak. Look for those who don't have and give some of what you've been blessed, give some of your abundance to them so they will have as well. Then two groups of influential people come to to John the Baptist and they say, well, what shall we do? Verse 12, and some tax collectors also came to be baptized and they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what you have been ordered to collect. See, the tax collectors would often ask for more than what they really had to collect. So that way they could go back to Rome and they would give the taxes that were owed, but whatever was extra, they'd put in their own pockets. John the Baptist is saying, if you want to really follow after Christ here, don't be domineering. Don't use your position of authority in such a way that you're manipulating the money out of your brother's pockets. Verse 14, some soldiers were questioning him saying, and what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. These soldiers had swords. They had shields. They had the power of the Roman army behind them. And many of them would often mistreat the Israelites, the Hebrew people, in order to get them to do what they wanted them to do. But these soldiers, who were commissioned by Rome, but were Hebrew by blood, are told by John here, don't use your might, your advantage, as a tool to manipulate those who are under your watch. Instead, lead them with gentleness and with justice. So the negative example here is that many people in the world think that those who are dominant should be leaders. Those who can push their way around and, 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 have, and, and force results by violence should be leaders. But in contrast to that, Peter tells us that biblical leader is to be exemplary. He is to be exemplary. His leadership should not come by forcefulness. It should become by him taking the first step in obedience to the Lord God. Because Jesus is the only perfect example, a godly leader must be exemplary in repentance as well as other things. That's an example to the flock that he is leading. A leader does not follow, does his followers no good when he hides every mistake that he makes and by doing so robs his people of an example of how to manage their unavoidable failures and shortcomings. So a leader an elder or a deacon should be willing to recognize when they make a mistake and lead through example by repenting of that mistake, by coming forward and saying, you're right, I will do it better next time. That's different than a domineering leader, isn't it? Domineering leaders don't don't admit their faults. They don't believe they ever do anything wrong. They just 
try to get people to believe that everything that they do is for the best. So the godly shepherd must be an example of repentance, must be an example of holiness, an example of faithfulness. And as we conclude, I want to draw our attention back to a really important truth. Who's writing these admonitions? Is it not Peter, who himself has failed dearly, the Lord Jesus Christ? The one who writes the letter to the churches and say, listen, be careful about who you put into positions of leadership is one who at his most dire hour denied even knowing Jesus three times. This is not a perfect leader, but it is a leader who in light of his failures displayed a repentant heart and was willing to come clean to Jesus and take responsibility for his mistakes. If you were to go to John chapter 21, there's this beautiful scene at the very end of John's gospel where Jesus appears after his resurrection. He has overcome death in the grave and he begins appearing in different spaces and different places to different believers to show that his resurrection is real. And here the uh, disciples, many of them are fishing and he appears to them on the seashore there by Galilee and they rush to him and they assemble and he's speaking with them and they're sitting there around a fire and they begin to make breakfast together. And in that moment, Jesus addresses Peter. You remember he, he addresses him three times. And he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter, having failed him as a leader, having been a man who did not stand for what he should have stood for, says, Jesus, you know that I love you. And then he, what does he tell him to do? He says, feed my sheep. The same question basically is asked three times. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And each time Peter, with a broken heart, says, Lord, you know that I love you. And each time he responds, if you love me, then tend to my sheep, feed my lambs. And so here you have the heart of Peter, who is tending to the sheep by teaching how to look carefully for those who would also tend for the sheep. He's not saying you gotta be perfect to be an elder. You gotta be perfect to be a deacon. He knows that's not true because he himself has failed. But he is saying that he who serves in this capacity must be exemplary. They must show the kind of heart that, that a true believer shows. When he fails, he must display a willingness to repent, a willingness to show responsibility for his actions. He must be willing to come before his people and say, I have fallen short and I repent of that and desire to walk in the truth now. The Lord has used Peter to show us that shepherding is a different kind of leading altogether, isn't it? It's not like the leadership that we see in the world. It's not like trying to be a CEO of a company or a, an entrepreneur. Shepherding is the kind of leadership we should desire because shepherding is humble. Shepherding is not glamorous. Shepherding is compassion. It is caring for those who cannot care for themselves. Most importantly, the under-shepherd must never lose track of the fact that he is a sheep himself, a sheep that also needs shepherding by Jesus Christ, the one good shepherd.